we are very blessed. All right, open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. This is lesson 179 in your books, The Sixth Hour Darkness. You know, it is only fitting that the crucifixion and the death of the Son of God would not only include the great miracle of the salvation of the penitent thief, who represents, really, you know, the multitude of penitent sinners who would also come to faith in the Savior of the cross, but it is very appropriate that the the crucifixion and the death of God's Son would be accompanied by supernatural events. You know, if the one who was dying on the cross was who he declared himself to be, you would expect, wouldn't you? You would expect that the time of his passion when he was literally bearing the sins of the entire world, you would expect that time to be attended by wonders that were beyond human explanation, supernatural events that would therefore distinguish him, set him apart from anyone else who had ever died as he died, and his also set apart his unique redemptive work. Wouldn't you expect that? Well, and because God is the creator, all creation is at his command. Therefore, he can use creation to do as he wills in order to display his power. And boy, don't we see it. Like in hurricanes, we see his power. Or he can use creation to display his, his anger, his judgment. He can use it to display his joy, like as in a rainbow, or his promise, his covenant promise. He can use creation to give testimony to his son's person. So it would be very appropriate for someone who was examining, honestly examining the identity of Jesus Christ to ask if there were any supernatural events that took place during the time of his crucifixion and his death. And were there? Yes, definitely there were. There were four notable miracles besides the salvation of the penitent thief and possibly the salvation of the Roman centurion and others who were with him after the Lord's death, which of course is the greatest miracle of all, salvation, the miracle that takes place in a human heart. But there were four what we could call creative miracles, or I'm going to call them Calvary miracles, even though they extended beyond that place called Calvary, you know, the place of the skull. But we're going to refer to them as Calvary miracles. And today we're going to discuss the first of these four Calvary miracles in this lesson entitled The Sixth Hour Darkness. So that gives you kind of a hint as to what this first miracle is, was. What was it? The eerie darkness, that strange darkness that covered the land at the time of the last three hours the Lord spent on the cross from 12 noon, the the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. This is the only one of the four Calvary miracles that took place before the Lord's death. The other three all occurred in rapid succession at the time of his death. And what were they? When he died, what happened simultaneously with his death? 
the temple veil was rent from top to bottom. Then there was an earthquake, and then what else happened at the same time? The rending of graves, that graves were open, certain graves were open. And out of them came Old Testament saints, but not until Sunday, after the Lord's resurrection. You see, he was the first fruit of the resurrection. No one preceded his resurrection. But if you read Matthew 27, 53, look at it, you'll see that they rose after he did on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. Well, also in today's lesson, we are going to discuss the deepest, most profound, and most difficult to understand of the Lord's seven cross sayings. This is his fourth saying from the cross. It is also the middle saying. You know, there's seven. There's one in the middle, and it happens to be the fourth. And he cried it out in a loud vase, a voice, a vase, a loud voice in an Aramaic-tinged Hebrew. Uh, Mark has it as Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and Matthew has him saying Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Both it was it was a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. And that's why some of the people, when they heard it, were a little bit confused about what he said. They thought maybe he was calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. But uh, he spoke this at the very end of the three hours of darkness. So what we want to do is we want to look at Matthew's account for this because um, he gives it exactly the same as Mark, so we might as well stay in Matthew. Matthew and Mark are almost identical in what they tell us. We're not going to look at Luke because Luke does not give us the cross saying, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He only talks about the darkness. John doesn't talk about the darkness or the fourth cross saying, my God, my God. He doesn't give us either one. Why do you think John didn't do that? Well, he was the last one to write, for one thing. So the other three had already talked about it. So he just was inspired to leave that out. Everybody already knew about it. And he, yeah, he was emphasizing deity. But this, well, it does. In a way, we'll see. All right, anyway, um, so we're only going to read Matthew's account so you can stay kind of comfortably uh, parked in Matthew. Our outline for this study is fun because we have a play on words. We're going to look at the sun darkened, and then we're going to look at the sun deserted. And I spell those suns differently. That's a homonym delight there. <laughs> so let's look. We're only going to cover two verses. Remember I told you that last week. We went from five verses to three verses, now we're down to two verses. You think we can talk a whole hour on two verses? Yeah, oh yeah, you know we can. <laughs> All right, let's look at Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I told you a minute ago that all three of the synoptic writers, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were inspired to record for us the time and the length of the miraculous darkness that covered the land. So there has to be a reason for this, right? You know that by now, in this point in, your, in our Bible study, that 
if all three gospel, well, any everything is important, but when all three tell us something, that means it's important. It was dark from the sixth hour, as I said, that's 12 noon, till three o'clock or the, the um, ninth hour. So what is the Holy Spirit calling our attention to when giving us that particular information? It is that this darkness occurred during the brightest hours of the day. When is it the brightest? When the sun is at its zenith, 12 noon, 12 noon to 3 o'clock. The time of day of this miracle and the length of it emphasize for us the, the miraculous nature of the darkness. You know, if this darkness occurred at twilight, it wouldn't be quite so spectacular, would it? As the sun is going down and somebody might be able to explain it away and say, well, it was getting dark anyway or something. Yeah. And, you know, skeptics like to do that as they do. They say, many of them will say that this, they explain away this darkness by saying, well, this was just the result of an eclipse, an eclipse of the sun. Well, that would really be miraculous if it was the result of a sun eclipse. Because I read in the encyclopedia that the normal length for a sun eclipse is two and a half minutes. And even when the moon is completely, you know, blocking the sun, there is a halo of light around the sun. We're going to see this darkness was pitch black darkness. So um, that would really be a miracle if it was <laughs> an eclipse. But other skeptics have said that, no, this darkness was caused by, they come up with all kinds of things, but some say a sandstorm. I don't know that right outside the city walls of Jerusalem there's ever been a sandstorm, maybe in the middle of a desert or something, but they'll say a sandstorm or, or a, a sudden, you know, very dark rainstorm. If that's true, then why did none of the gospel writers tell us anything about sand or wind or, or, or rain or lightning? Huh? None of them mention that. You know, really, the, it comes down to this. If you believe that God is who he is, God, if you believe in the beginning God, then you can believe that he can do <laughs> whatever he chooses to do. He can cause the sun to stand still, as he did in the days of Joshua. You know, he can do whatever he wants with his own creation. And you don't need to come up with all kinds of other explanations to get rid of the supernatural in the Bible, which so many people try to do. Get rid of all the supernatural. If you do that, you don't have much left. And they also try to get rid of the prophecy and, oh, on and on we could go. I won't go, go there, okay? <laughs> Something else also when, <laughs> when Mark refers to the darkness at the sixth hour, um, he indicates by his, his Greek verb that it came suddenly, suddenly, which doesn't work for an eclipse of the sun because that's a gradual thing. This came suddenly. You know, I got to thinking it would be the opposite of in the beginning, you know, when God said, let there be light. What do you think happened? Boom, there was light. And here, I think he just said, let there be darkness, and suddenly, total darkness. There is a great comparison, and this is always fun. I, I have you doing this a lot of times in your homework, you know, contrasts and comparisons. But I wonder if you have ever thought about this. 
And this is interesting because we're coming up on Christmas, and so you can share with your children and your grandchildren um, some of the contrasts and comparisons with the Christmas story when Jesus was born and the crucifixion story when he died. We've already talked about some of those, haven't we? Like he was when he was born, he was surrounded probably by gentle domestic animals. When he died, he was surrounded by lions and bulls and um, dogs, vicious, hateful human animals. When he was born, he was laid in a wooden manger. When he died, he, he, he laid himself on a wooden cross. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes as a baby, which represented death, actually. He was unwrapped of his clothes when he died, and on and on we could go. But here's another one. There is a great comparison to be made between the time of the Savior's birth and what occurred in the sky at that time and the situation of the sky at the time of his death. In the very familiar Christmas account of Luke chapter 2, we all know that on the night of the Lord's birth, there were shepherds out in the field near Bethlehem who were keeping watch over their flock by what? By night. When suddenly, suddenly, the natural darkness of the nighttime sky was lit up like the blazing noonday sun as an angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, making them sore afraid. I love that term, don't you? Sore afraid. Now that sudden brightness of the sky would not have been nearly as noticeable and as miraculous if it had happened at noon, would it? If all of a sudden the sky lit up at noon, those shepherds wouldn't really be, it probably wouldn't even notice it. This sudden sky testimony is exactly what the Lord God did in reverse at the time of his son's death. And because it turned dark at noon, it's more noticeable, more spectacular, more of a display of the miraculous, isn't it? Now, the Lord on the cross, as we know, literally was paying the penalty for our sins. He was in the very process of spoiling and vanquishing the power of Satan. This is where Satan's head was crushed. He vanquished Satan and his evil forces. Now, what is Satan's realm? Light or darkness? Where does he do his best work? Where does he become an expert? He's the prince of darkness, isn't he? So to make his victory even more glorious, Jesus willingly gave his enemy the advantage by fighting on Satan's ground in his realm which is darkness, in a situation that Satan has been prince for millennia, thousands of years. Well, God the Father not only permitted his son to be delivered into the hands of his human enemies, but he also allowed these powers of darkness to be let loose against him, against his son, allowing them to do their very worst. I mean, they really went after Christ in these last three hours on the cross. And they were allowed, they were permitted by God the Father to do their worst, even 
worse than he gave permission to do to Job. Because remember, he pulled back with Job. He said to Satan, you can do anything with him but what? But, but kill him, but take his life. And this time, as the Lord is on the cross, there are no angels sent from heaven to minister to him or to strengthen him as there were when he battled Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember at the end of that, God sent angels to minister to him. And in Gethsemane, even after he agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was an angel sent to minister to him. This time, no angels are sent. On the cross, there's no Simon the Cyrene who's provided to assist him with his burden. He does this solo, doesn't he? Even God himself remained silent to the consciousness of his son. So Christ's soul was troubled, and it was pierced through not only by the forces of hell itself, which would be enough to do any one of us in, but worse, by the forsakenness of God his Father. That's the worst part of the cross and these last three hours on the cross, that God the Father had to forsake God the Son. And we're going to talk about that a little later when we get to the fourth cross saying. Therefore, at the brightest time of the day, God caused darkness to cover all the land, it says, for a total of three hours while his son literally became sin, the personification of sin. Think of it. Remember the seven I am statements that the Lord made in his ministry? And one of them in John eight twelve is he said, I am the light of the world. Here what we have is the light of the world literally becoming sin and becoming the curse of sin. His light went out. And when the light of the world goes out, what is the result? Pitch, pitch black darkness, utter darkness. And it was, it was dark, I believe, during those three hours. So dark, couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Now, there's a lot of debate, as you can imagine, about whether this darkness just covered the area of Calvary. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? I try to picture that. You know, just Skull Hill has darkness and all around there's light. Or some say, no, it covered the whole land of Israel. And others say it was the entire world. And even the, the half of the world that would be in natural darkness. You know, because of the rotation of the world. And they say, well, there was a full moon. We know it was a full moon because Passover is always based on the full moon. So there was a full moon. And don't you know some nights when you go out when there's a full moon, you can, you can walk around fine. No problem. So even the half of the world that was in darkness because of the full moon, they could see. But this darkness, they say, was so dark, you know, the sun was affected and therefore the moon was not reflecting the light of the sun. And even that side of the world was in pitch black darkness on the night of a full moon. Are you following me? Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, so there's a lot of debate about this. And the word for land in the Greek that is used in both Matthew and Mark does not really help us because that word for land can either refer to just the land of Israel 
or to the whole world. So it's not very helpful. However, Luke, I didn't read Luke's account, but Luke does give us a clue because he used the term the sun was darkened. And literally in the Greek, it's the sun's light failing, which doesn't speak of an eclipse, does it? Does the sun's light fail during an eclipse? No, it's just blocked by the moon. Um, it, this suggests, Luke's words suggest that the cause lay in the sun itself rather than in an atmospheric obstruction to its rays. So that's interesting. Bottom line is, we don't dogmatically know exactly how widespread this noonday three-hour darkness was. So I can't say it definitely just was Calvary, it definitely just was the land of Israel, or it definitely was the whole world. God could have caused any of those. He has the power. And if you think, well, he made the sun's light go out and we would everybody would have frozen on earth he also has the power to keep the earth warm during those three hours if he wants to god is god but it is interesting i'm going to sidetrack for a minute here to prove to show something it is interesting <clears throat> that there likewise was a miraculous darkness that came over the land of egypt during the time of the ninth plague Remember, back in the days of Moses, <clears throat> Exodus 10, verses 21 and 22. And do you know when that ninth plague darkness occurred? It took place right before God slew all the firstborns. And the Israelites slew the Passover lamb in order to save themselves from God's death angel. Hmm. You know, this is the Passover. Crucifixion. Jesus is dying on the Passover. And they all shared on Passover with their families the Passover story. So this is all fresh in their minds about that darkness and the, 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 the shedding of the, the blood of the lamb to put on the doorposts of their home so that the death angel would pass. Over. Now, all of this is fresh on their minds. And when that darkness fell in Egypt during the ninth plague, it was only upon the land of Egypt, wasn't it? And amazingly, it was so utterly dark that the people, we are told in the scripture, that the people could not even see one another. But there was light in the homes of the children of Israel. You see, God can do whatever he wants to do, can't he? Of course Interestingly, how long did that darkness last? Three days. Passover crucifixion darkness, three hours. I wonder, because of the obvious purposeful similarities between Passover, or with Passover, and the significance of the deliverance by way of the Passover lamb and saving people from their bondage in Egypt, and Egypt is a picture of what? the world, and from death, if the three-hour darkness at the time of the Lord's death 
the time of God's death of the true Passover lamb was not also completely dark so that people could not see one another. Because of this obvious comparison, I think it was. We are told that they couldn't see one another in the original Passover darkness. I doubt they could see one another in the crucifixion Passover darkness. But more important than that they couldn't see one another, what do you think God was doing? I think he was making sure that no one saw his son as he was going through the agony of being separated from him and all that he went through there. I think that was more important. Um, I believe it did. I'm, I'm entitled to my own personal opinion, aren't I? So my, my personal opinion is that it did cover the entire land of Israel not just Calvary. I believe it covered the whole land of Israel, that it was a sign by God of the significance of this event and as a sign of judgment upon the land of Israel for rejecting the one who came to deliver them from the death angel. And you know, I also got to think, thinking about it, that ever since they rejected the true Passover lamb, The death angel has been coming and taking all of their firstborns. All of Israel's firstborns have died. Now the ladies yesterday were confused too with what I was saying. But you see, you must be born again in order for the death angel to pass over you. So it's also true that God ever since has been taking all the firstborn Gentiles. If you're only born once, if you're only born physically... The death angel will get you. You must be born again for him to pass over. You must accept the shed blood of the true Passover lamb and apply it to the doorpost of your heart in order for death to pass over you. Now, there are ancient reports that make this even more interesting. You know, just Calvary or or just the land of Israel or maybe the whole globe in darkness. We have ancient records that may even suggest that the crucifixion day darkness was worldwide. According to some uh, uh, historical records that we have, one by the Christian, early Christian apologist. You know, an apologist is one who defends the scripture. And one of the first Christian apologists was Tertullian. And he was writing to unbelievers and he spoke of the unusual darkness on the day of Christ's death. And he told these unbelievers to go check out their own historical archives and find out the truth that the darkness was recorded in their own historical records. Origen, who was another early church patriarch, wrote of a statement that was made by a Roman historian who also mentioned the strange darkness that took place on crucifixion day all the way over in Rome, Italy. Dionysius, who was writing from Egypt, said that the darkness of the day was, quote, listen to this, either the God of nature is suffering or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruins. Isn't that an interesting statement? The God of nature suffering? Hmm. There's also a document from Pontius Pilate to Emperor Tiberius Caesar. 
that simply assumed that the emperor already knew about a certain widespread darkness that took place on the day that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And that that darkness, he specifically said, lasted from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And those are just some of the records. So who's to say? It could have gone, you know, just the land of Israel or worldwide. Darkness, you know, darkness in the scripture symbolizes judgment. We've seen that many, you especially see it in the book of Revelation. But this was a divine announcement of coming judgment, wasn't it? For what men had done to God's son. And even the Jewish rabbis admitted, I mean, they knew that darkness, uh, the darkening of the sun was a sign of judgment from God for a particularly wicked sin. And it doesn't get any more wicked than killing God's son, does it? And who is responsible for killing him? Really, we could say the whole world because it's our sin. So it, I think it, it very well could have been a darkness over the entire world. The greatest sin ever committed was by fallen mankind. Well, have you ever thought about the fact that the manifestation of sin has been progressive? Um, you know, evil men wax worse and worse. It's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? Unfortunately. But the first manifestation of sin was what we could actually say a suicide was a suicide. Now you probably think I'm crazy when I say that, but let me explain. We are told in the scripture that Eve was deceived. She was deceived by Satan. But Adam was not deceived. You do know that, right? First Timothy 2.14 clearly tells us Adam was not deceived. He knew, God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. He knew that. He believed that. He took the fruit knowing he was rebelling against God. He chose to die. He began to die that moment physically. And instantly he died spiritually because he was broken his fellowship with God his relationship with God was severed I I said yesterday my husband always says woman you're so easily deceived and I say yeah but man you willfully chose (laughs) (laughs) so because he he willfully chose to die he basically killed himself who did he choose he chose Eve over God really he chose to stay with Eve and it was a bad choice a very bad choice Because sin came into the world, not through Eve. It came through Adam. Um, And then, then, as we read through Genesis, the next manifestation of sin was that of fratricide. Fratricide. You know, fraternity, brothers. We have one brother killing another brother. Didn't take very long for that to happen either. Cain killed his brother Abel. Read on a little bit further, go into Genesis chapter 4, and there is homicide, man killing his fellow man, which has been going on ever since. The evil Lamech killed a man and was bragging about it. However, the worst manifestation of sin ever, the climax of all sin, occurred on Calvary when man committed deicide. What is deicide? Man killing deity, man killing God. So no wonder God covered the land and perhaps even the whole world with utter darkness. 
It was as dark as we have ever gotten. The depravity of man when man kills God. There was absolutely also no sound that came from the cross during this time of darkness. The Lord, you know, had spoken three times before the darkness, and he will speak four times at the conclusion of the darkness, right in a row. But during the darkness, there's not a single word that came from his lips. And not a single event is recorded for us during these three hours. The darkness even, now this is really a miracle, but the darkness even shut the mouths of the chief priests <laughs> and the other religious rulers and everyone who was mocking him. We hear of no mockery at all during these three hours of darkness. Even though their hearts were not changed, the sudden and absolute darkness must have struck terror in their hearts and no one dared to speak a word against Jesus during that darkness. And I can't help but wonder if any of them, because this is the Passover and they were thinking about their deliverance from Egypt under Pharaoh, I wonder if any of them, especially the religious rulers who, who knew their Bibles inside out, if they thought about Pharaoh at this time and how that ninth plague of darkness did not gain his attention, did it? Maybe some of these chief priests and scribes and elders thought of this. I hope so, and I hope it affected them. But I'm sure the majority of them did not, because just like Pharaoh, when the plague of darkness ended, they hardened their hearts and they forgot what God had done to, de to demonstrate who his son was and to also demonstrate his disfavor and his coming judgment. Not only did the darkness cover the land, but we also could say it covered the gospel records because they tell us absolutely nothing of those three hours. From Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know nothing that happened during those three hours except for the darkness. However, we do understand from some Old Testament passages and also from some of the writings in the New Testament, we do find out what was taking place during those three dark hours. The Lord Jesus, the true Passover lamb, was bearing in his own body the transgressions of the world. He was the sin bearer, and God the Father was shrouding the entire event as the transaction took place between God the Son impaled on a tree and God the Father accepting from him the blood atonement for the sins of the entire world. And he drew a black veil over the unspeakable sufferings of his Son during that time. You see, it just was not right for human eyes to look upon the agony of pure holiness becoming sin and experiencing the punishment of eternal hell. He experienced eternal hell during those three hours. We'll explain that a little later. This darkness represented God's coming judgment upon sin. Uh, utter darkness is the result of absence from God. If men choose against God... What are they going to experience? What is God? God is light. Who is Christ? He's the light of the world. If you choose not to do things God's way and you reject God, you will spend eternity without light. In utter, that's why hell is a place of utter darkness. Because God isn't there. Christ isn't there. It's also a place that lacks total, any love. 
Because God is love. There's none of the attributes of God are going to be present in hell, which is going to make it hell, isn't it? No, no love, no grace, no mercy, no kindness, no patience, no forgiveness. You go on and on. Every attribute of God will be absent there. Horrible to think about. It's part of the damnation of sinners. Since the Lord Jesus was experiencing this judgment on behalf of sinners, for him, that darkness was more than just physical darkness. For everybody else there, it was just physical darkness. You know, strange. They couldn't see one another, couldn't see anything. But for him, it was also spiritual darkness. The separation of his human soul from God which is absolutely the most agonizing experience that a soul will ever could ever have to be separated from God. And the cry that pierced that absolute silence at the end of that darkness gives us evidence of the fullness of the judgment that Jesus experienced during those three hours on our behalf. Fascinatingly, it is like the gospel writers are taking turns in everything we've been looking at in the past three weeks. You know, his words to the penitent thief were only provided for us by, who remembers? Who was the only gospel writer to tell us about the penitent thief and his salvation? It was Luke. Luke. And then we had the Lord's words concerning Mary, and the only one who gave us that was John, all right, you know that because you just discussed that in your groups, right? <laughs> and now the Lord's anguishing cry of God forsakenness is found solely in Matthew and Mark. Only by Matthew and Mark. But it is the only cross saying that's found in two Gospels. Every one of the others of the seven cross sayings are found in only one Gospel. You know, Luke gives us Three, I think. John gives us three. Um, but this cross saying, this center one, is given by two gospel writers. It's also, as I said earlier, the central saying of the seven. So what do you think that tells us? Do you think it tells us that this is an important cross saying? This is a very important cross saying. Now, I'm going to say this twice because this is so important. Without this central cross saying, when the Lord Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Without that saying, do you know that we would not know that God did indeed separate himself from his son? Without this cross saying, we wouldn't know that Jesus was separated from his father and suffered spiritual death on our behalf. Sin separates from God. The wages of sin is what? Death. Both physical and spiritual death. This cry of the Lord Jesus was for our benefit because it tells us of the spiritual judgment he bore on our behalf. You know, his death is now at hand. His death is, we're right on the, edge. It's three o'clock. The darkness is over. He, he says, my God, my, he, he quickly says all, or, all four of the last sayings right in a row. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right after that, he says, I thirst. 
After that, he says, it is finished. And then he bows his head and says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. They come all in a row. So we're right there. He is about to die. And we won't get to that till January. But um, <laughs> a long three hours. We'll extend it. Uh, but the, his, his, uh, his, this saying was such a loud cry. Can you imagine after three hours of pitch black darkness and not a sound? I mean, it is just utterly quiet. And all of a sudden, I'm sure it gave everybody a shock. When all of a sudden, he just, in a very loud voice, says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You know, we don't have a weak Savior. For him to do that after six hours of hanging on the cross, pushing up and down just to be able to get air in and out, and then to cry out in a loud voice like that, that's amazing right there. And what he said was a Hebrew-tinged Aramaic. And it's translated for us, so we don't have to worry about what it means. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But very interestingly, in the um, the Greek, the word forsaken is given in the aorus tense, which means that literally he said, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? You see, it's looking back to the time when he entered into that awful experience, out of which he just now came. The darkness, I believe, ended just as suddenly as it began. And the minute it ended, this is what he said. Why did you forsake me? But he's come out of it. You see? He's just come out of it. And although those who heard the Lord's loud cry misunderstood him, they mocked him and said, oh, he wants Elijah to come and, and, and take him down. We'll talk about that next week. You and I should not misunderstand him here. This is very important. These these are not the words of a delusional Jesus. He didn't take that narcotic drug, did he? Everything he says is 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 just so wise. He's he's not a weak savior, he's not a delusional savior. Sometimes you will find Bible teachers who in the interest of trying to safeguard, protect the relationship of the members of the Trinity, they will try to explain away what was actually taking place during those three hours. And they do this because it really is almost impossible for you and I to understand how God could be forsaken of God. That is pretty difficult to wrap your mind around, isn't it? That God could forsake God. However, That is exactly what the Lord's words mean when he said, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? The incarnated Son of God was forsaken by God the Father, not only because it had been prophesied that that would happen in Psalm 22, 1. Remember how that psalm, which is definitely a messianic psalm, we've looked at it, It begins with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not only prophesied, but it was absolutely, positively, definitely necessary for God the Father to forsake God the Son. The necessity lies in the very very nature of God himself. God is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Habakkuk 1.3 tells us that his eyes are too pure to look upon what? 
sin, evil. The Apostle Paul tells us that during this time, these three hours of darkness, God the Father was making God the Son to be sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. He became the embodiment, the personification of sin itself. Why? For us. Furthermore, God is not only holy, what else is he? He's just. You don't want to go to a judge for a trial who isn't just, do you? An unjust God, a judge is not good. But God is a just judge. Sin needs to be punished. And the Holy Son of God himself was the one who was chosen by the other members of the Trinity and also the one who volunteered, willingly agreed to be the substitute for our sin. Because no other would do. No man could do, because all men are born with the Adamic sin nature. No angel could do, because they can't reproduce. So, and remember John, in the, in the Revelation chapter 5, how he's weeping? Because there's no one worthy to take back this earth and redeem this earth and mankind, and he's weeping. And then the elder says, ah, but there is one who is worthy, the lamb that was slain. The Lord Jesus had to go through the judgment that sinners deserved. And one of those judgments was the separation from the presence of God the Father. The substitute for sinners had to experience the sinner's penalty, or else you and I could never, ever be saved. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, quote, The very pith and marrow of the gospel lies in the word substitution. Are you not happy, glad, thankful, joyful for that word substitution that Jesus, and, and, the, and the reality behind it that Jesus was willing to become our substitute, take the punishment of sin on himself so that we don't have to? Psalm 40, which is also repeated, by the way, over in Hebrews chapter 10, tells us that it was not possible for the blood of, of animals to take away the sin of men, the sins of men. You know, all those years when the animals were sacrificed over and over and over again in the temple, all of those slain animals and their blood that was shed was just anticipatory, wasn't it? It didn't satisfy God. And Hebrews 10.5 even tells us, interestingly, I know I say that word a lot, but I, it is interesting that God's, what God's son said when he was coming into this world. You want to know the words of the, the pre-incarnate Jesus as he was just about to become incarnate, as he was just about to go into the womb of Mary? His words are written for us. He said to his father, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. In other words, they're not what God desired. But a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. You see, God the Son knew God the Father didn't have any pleasure in all those sacrifices. And then God the Son, as he's about to become incarnated, said to his Father, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. What book is he talking about? 
the scripture. The whole Old Testament, you know that, don't you? From Genesis to Malachi is all about him. That's what he told to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said, the scripture, you know, Moses wrote of me, the whole Bible, and he went through the whole Old Testament and showed them how it speaks of him. So he says, well, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is written in my heart. That's what he said. Now, what was God's will that the Son of God delighted to do in order to fulfill the law that was not only in God's heart, but in his heart? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You know, he knew that there had to be a shedding of innocent human blood in order for sins to be remitted, atoned for. What was God's will that the Son of God delighted to do? It was to offer his own body, the body that God the Father had prepared for him. God the Son delighted. Isn't that amazing? He delighted to offer his body as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin so that it would please and satisfy God the Father. That is incredible. As he's suffering those six hours, and especially those last three hours on the cross, going through hell for you and I, he was delighted to do that. And here's the other side of that picture. We're told in Isaiah 53.10, which is another Messianic Old Testament passage, that it pleased, I know some of you have stumbled over this and thought, this is crazy, how can this be? But it actually says it pleased the Lord Jehovah God to bruise his son. Wow, that's a mystery, isn't it? That the offering up of God the Son as a sin substitute would be a delight to both God the Father and the Son. But what does it tell you about their love for us? Why did it delight them so much? Because they knew that in offering God the Son, you and I could spend eternity with them. Wow. Wow. If the Lord Jesus was not forsaken by his heavenly Father, there is no salvation for us. Because God's punishment of, of sin includes God forsaking a human being for all eternity. If we're to be saved from eternal God forsakenness, then someone needs to experience eternal God forsakenness in our place. Christ had no sin of his own, did he? No sin of his own for which God would forsake him. Why would God forsake him if he had no sin? He wouldn't have. So for him to cry out as he did, it must be for someone else's sin that he was forsaken. You see, his cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, was his confession that he truly was bearing all the consequences of our sin, not his sin. And those consequences included eternal separation from God. You know, thank God that you and I will never have to know God forsakenness because he did it in our, on our behalf. And I hope no one in this room will never, ever have to experience God forsakenness. You don't have to because today you can be saved. All you have to do, remember the penitent thief? Lord, remember me. 
It's so simple. If it's coming from your heart and you mean it and you believe he is who he is and he died for your sins, just ask him to save you and he will. And you will never be separated from God, ever. Well, in order to provide salvation for Adam's race by satisfying the holiness of a just God, Jesus had to pay the full penalty of sin. That includes both aspects of death, physical and spiritual. He had to be separated from God. He had to die bodily. Now, we know from the gospel records and we know from other New Testament writings that Jesus did die physically, don't we? We know that. We're going to talk about people who don't think he did and all the silly theories that are out there. But he was buried. He was dead. Okay? We know he died physically. But how do we know that he also suffered spiritual death? How? How do we know that? We know it because of his fourth cry from the cross. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? That's how we know he also died spiritually for us. Um, and you know what? He wasn't asking God that question because he needed to know the answer. Do you know that? Why did you forsake me? Do you think Jesus didn't know why God had to forsake him? Of course he knew why God had to forsake him. In fact, if you go back to Psalm 22.1, when he first asked that question, my God, my God, because, you know, he's prophesying that the Messiah would come and one day ask that question. He also gives the answer in Psalm 22, verse 3. He answered his own question. Why did God have to forsake him? Because he is holy. He says, because thou art holy. He knew the answer. He gave us the answer. God's holy nature and God's character could not do any less than judge sin even though it was placed on his only beloved son. Although God loved him as his son, he had to turn from him as our sin. But make sure you understand this. Even during those three hours when God the Father had to turn his back on his son, Jesus Christ never ceased from being the eternal son of God. You know, when your child sins and you have to chasten them because of that sin, do they cease to become your child? No, he never ceased to become being the eternal son of God. So although the Lord knew the answer to his own question, he had to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only to fulfill that messianic, prophecy in Psalm 22.1, but also to let mankind know that he did die spiritually as well as physically. The only time, this is interesting, only time in the gospel records that he um, addressed, did not address God as his father was in this fourth crossing. Every other time he addressed his father as father. What was his first crossing? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What was his last cross saying? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So he was in a spiritual relationship with his father at the beginning of the cross. He was again with him at the end, wasn't he? But during those three hours, it's not my father. He was separate. It's my God, my God. Now, I'm sure that somebody is wondering about this question because in the past, I used to. Um, 
Why was Jesus only separated from God the Father for three hours on the cross when unsaved members of Adam's race must be eternally separated from God in order to pay for the wages of sin? Isn't that not fair? Isn't that unjust that Jesus only suffered separation for three hours? And unbelievers must be separated for all eternity, forever. Have you ever thought about that question? No? Yes? I know, it keeps you awake at night, doesn't it? (laughs) The answer to this is found in the fact, and this is difficult to to grasp, and I forgot to bring my pencil up here. (laughs) You got a pencil quick, a pen? Um, The answer is found in the fact that the Godhead is eternal life. This is Jesus Christ is eternal life. It says that in First John somewhere or somewhere. Um, but he not only do they have eternal life, they are eternal life. The source of all life is in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, because they are life. They are eternal life. Now, for eternal life to be cut off from eternal life is the equivalent of an eternity. Whether that separation is for one second for a zillion years, or for three hours. Now, this example is really pretty pathetic, but I couldn't come up with anything else. Let's say that this pen right here represents eternal life, okay? That shows you how pathetic this illustration is. But this, this is eternal life, okay? Now, if I cut out a little section in here, uh, uh, let's say it's a three-hour section, and take that little piece of the pen out of my hand, Here it is. What is it? It's still eternal life, isn't it? This is eternal life. I take a little piece out of it, it's eternal. Whether I took one second, all of it, or a piece of it, it's still eternal life. Just like my body, one little cell in my body is still Catherine because it's got my special little DNA in every cell, right? So, And I don't know if you can really grasp that, but um, (laughs) if you take into consideration the fact also that the Lord Jesus literally took upon himself every vile, every horrendous, every heinous, horrible sin that has ever been committed by every person who has ever lived, past, present, and yet future, you might possibly be able to understand that three hours for eternal life himself to be under the heavy load of the consciousness of all of that guilt of sin. You know, when I commit a sin, I feel guilty, don't you? You know, and I don't like that feeling of guilt, so you have to confess it real quick and get clean again. But can you imagine the burden, just having the burden of the guilt of all the sin that has ever, ever, or will be committed? the load just of that guilt, then he becomes sin, literally, he be, and he's pure holiness, and he becomes the curse of sin, and then take into consideration that he has uh, all hell fighting against him, Satan and all his forces, and he's under the full wrath of God, and then for those last three hours he's separated from God, never been separated from the other members of the, the Trinity at any time. Maybe then we can understand how in those three hours he experienced an eternity of hell. He was in hell. 
during those three hours. And yet, he trusted in his God to not keep him there. He would cling to the promise of his own divine scripture, for thou will not leave my soul in hell. Psalm 16.10 Although forsaken of his father on the cross, yet Jesus kept hold of him as my God. Isn't that, think of that, my God. He's still able to claim him as his God. He's just been through hell. He was God's servant doing his redemptive work and God was yet his work, God. You see, his faith did not waver. Even after all he'd been through. It's like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. On the cross, you know, the Lord Jesus had nothing to cling to at all except his trust in God. And his cry was really a manifestation of his faith because it was the cry of distress, yes, but not a cry of distrust. My God, my God. God had withdrawn from him, but his, his soul still cleaved to God. His, his faith, you see, was triumphant. For even after the three hours of eternal separation, he was able to say, My God. My God. You see, his faith really did more than just hold on. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine going through eternity in hell yourself? I mean, you would never come out the other end like he did. But he went, he just went through an eternity of hell. And yet, he did more than hold on. He came out totally triumphant. Because at the end, he is able to say, my God, my God. That, that is just, I hope you get that, because it's wonderful. You know, as in all things, he has given us the example once again to follow. Do we trust God even when we feel forsaken? Do we? Do you think that you will trust God in your last hour? Will I? I hope so, because he is definitely trustworthy. No matter what we go through, I hope you can still say, My God! My God! Uh, you know, it's easy to be at what you can call a sunshine Christian. It's easy to trust him when the, in him when the sun is shining, isn't it? But the real test comes as with the Lord when it is the darkest. But a faith that does not rest on God in the bad times as well as in the good times is not the faith of God's children. We must have faith to live by True, genuine faith, if we are going to have faith to die by. So, even though his only begotten son was the substitute for our sin, God did not ease up on the judgment. That was his son, but he didn't ease up at all. He separated himself from his son in accordance with his holiness. And therefore, the grace of God, grace for us, fulfilled the law of God. Nothing demonstrates this more than his cry from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
that tells us very clearly, very plainly, that Jesus did not die the death of a martyr. And he did not die as a result of God's weakness to keep him. He died purposely, willfully, delightfully in the place of sinners in order to make a way for us to be saved. In separating himself from his son, God was faithful to the law, to his own justice, and to his own holiness when he provided a way for guilty sinners to be saved. Aren't you thankful for what they decided to do and fulfilled on our behalf? Mm, We have so much to be thankful for. We are so blessed. Let's pray. Father, we know that there were never ever such three hours since you created man as these three hours when your son was in total darkness, separated from you. Never were there three hours that were so deep and so mysterious and when there was so much suffering going on. And never were there three such hours that literally changed the eternal destiny of so many millions upon millions of people, including, I pray, every single one of us in this room. Father, help us to not just be sunshine Christians, but to always be be steadfast and unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, even and especially in the dark times. We love you. I ask that you would go with every woman. Help her to always be thankful for what you did for us. And we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.